High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another installment in our ongoing series, Gossip Girls. The desire of people to tell a story that is the dream of which my town was built. <laughs> oh, what a spot to be in. There are two of them in town. Now, it isn't Luella Parsons, is it? Must be Miss Hedda Hopper. What about public insults? Did you ever suffer at the hands of the old Crocs, Lolly, and Hedda? Hollywood's best-known, best-loved, most distinguished reporter. Movie news from both Hollywood and New York. And that dream will remain forever. Earlier in this series, we talked about Hedda Hopper's campaign against Charlie Chaplin. If hating Chaplin gave Hopper a vehicle for her reactionary nationalism, it also helped to further define her against Luella Parsons, who Chaplin considered a friend and who was selected to break the news of Chaplin's marriage to Una O'Neill. It was indicative of Luella's strength of character that she would increasingly exercise caution in how she wrote about Chaplin, so as to not appear to be too friendly to him as the climate evolved. Because Hopper and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover were playing a long game against Chaplin, who they were only able to permanently physically remove from the United States after a decade of constant harassment. In the end, they may have only succeeded 
because of how drastically the world changed between World War II and the mid-1950s. And for the first time, Hollywood wasn't able to insulate itself from what was going on in national politics. Before the war, it was possible to live in Los Angeles and work in the movies and pay absolutely no attention to what was going on in Washington, D.C. Even during World War I, even during the Depression, it was possible, even encouraged, to remain apolitical. Though the House Un-American Activities Committee began its investigations into communist influence on the entertainment industry in the late 1930s, no one in Hollywood took those initial investigations particularly seriously. And really, up until Pearl Harbor, most of the film industry acted on an unofficial policy of live and let live. People were allowed to do what they wanted or needed to do in their private or political lives, as long as it didn't impact anyone else's ability to do what they wanted to do or impede the making of money. Then, after Pearl Harbor, everyone on the left and everyone on the right was pressured to find common ground in the name of winning the war. So people who had been vehemently anti-communist in 1940 were now encouraged to embrace Russia as an ally. But as soon as the war was over, the Cold War essentially began, and now American patriotism and capitalism demanded demonizing the Soviets and anyone who in the present or the past had supported the Soviet cause or any anti-fascist, even quasi-socialist causes without explicitly holding their nose. Some people began this transition even before the war ended such as Time magazine publisher and Hedda Hopper backer Henry Luce. Luce had been in favor of the U.S.'s intervention into the European conflict, but before the war ended, Luce turned against Russia and Soviet communism. He supported McCarthyism initially because he was happy to push conspiracy theories if they were shaped in support of free markets and freedom of religion over communism. From the late 1940s until the mid-60s, when the counterculture became a significant force in American media, the loose point of view was so powerful that it became the default American point of view. It wasn't neutral. It was extremely conservative. But his publications, Time, Life, and Fortune, worked a collective, manipulative magic trick to make what was actually an extremely far-right perspective look like the middle of the road. That kind of magical thinking would be crucial to allowing the Hollywood blacklist to happen. If you want or need a comprehensive recap of what the Hollywood blacklist was, how and why it happened, and how it ended, we did a whole 16-episode series of this podcast on it. And you should at least listen to the first episode of that if you need a primer. It's episode 71. Today, we'll talk about how both Luella and Hedda dealt with the wave of communist panic that crashed into Hollywood after the war, re-scrambling alliances and ruining lives. And we'll talk about a gossip competitor that emerged during the Blacklist era and for a brief time 
stole the spotlight with a voice that was at once extremely conservative and implicitly queer. Join us, won't you? For part six of Gossip Girls, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Luella Parsons had to support the blacklist because she supported the studios at a corporate level and because Hearst was, by this point, rabidly anti-communist. But all witch-hunting things considered, she really did the bare minimum amount of persecuting while also showing a humanism that was in short supply in Hollywood during this period. By the 1940s, Parsons was politically conservative She supported Thomas Dewey, the Republican and losing candidate, in the 1944 and 1948 presidential elections. And she used both her column and her book to celebrate the paragons of virtue she found amongst Hollywood's right wing. But she wasn't nearly as far right as Hedda Hopper. Hedda was committed to far right politics with religious fervor. Luella was actually a religious person, and she grew more devout as she grew older. By the mid-1940s, it was difficult for her to feel that kind of passion for anything but her faith. Communism was less of a personal concern for Parsons than the Hollywood epidemic of divorce, which she worried she glamorized by reporting on it. Around this time, she consulted a cardinal 
concerning her qualms about the unchristian behaviors her job essentially required her to draw attention to. The cardinal told her that a job is a job, and God understood she had to make a living. In her columns, Luella would rail against communists in Hollywood, but she took the stance that it was not a pervasive threat. When the HUAC hearings got underway, Luella virtually ignored them in her newspaper column, instead using that real estate to argue against racially motivated censorship, singling out Southern censors who sought to eliminate Black people from movies entirely. As if aware that witch-hunting rhetoric in print wouldn't age well, she confined most of her material along those lines to her radio show. In one broadcast, she offered an editorial supporting the ousting of all suspected communists from the industry. On another episode of the show, she responded to the Committee for the First Amendment, a group of stars who had traveled to Washington to support the Hollywood Ten at their HUAC hearings, by singling out Humphrey Bogart for his activism, which Luella described as ill-advised. But her ultimate message seemed to be that performers couldn't really cause too much damage, as long as they heeded her implied advice to shut up and act. Ever concerned with cheerleading for the industry as an institution, all the better to maintain good relations with the studios who would outlast any individual stars, Parsons tried to make the case that the communist threat was limited to just a few bad apples who could be easily weeded out through due process. As Luella wrote in April 1947, Men such as L.B. Mayer, Jack Warner, Y. Frank Freeman, and Ronald Reagan have proven devoted to American ideals. The motion picture industry should not be put under suspicion because a few have gone to the left. It's significant that all of the men she mentioned here held significant institutional power in Hollywood. Mayer, Warner, and Freeman were the presidents of MGM, Warner Brothers, and Paramount, respectively. And Ronald Reagan had recently been appointed president of the Screen Actors Guild and would be re-elected every year for five years on the platform of keeping the Guild free of communist influence. Luella was essentially promising that the adults in the room would take care of this problem in an attempt to inspire faith amongst readers in the industry and outside of it that Hollywood could take care of itself and didn't need HUAC or any other governmental force setting or enforcing policy for them. Luella had been a booster of the industry from her first column, which was close enough to the beginning of the industry that she was all too aware that the movies could be ephemeral. So perhaps she had more perspective, that she was able to understand anti-communism as a fad that would pass, the way so many things had. The important thing, in Luella's mind, was to protect the industry so that it could surf this wave and come out the other side. Hedda Hopper wasn't interested in preserving institutions that she was convinced were infected with the dry rot of communism. Hopper's attitude was much more burn it all down. She took the stance that the problem of communism must be endemic in Hollywood, 
because the industry wasn't making movies from a right-wing point of view. As she complained in 1947, In what picture has an industrialist been shown as a straightforward, decent human being? That same year is when she began her mutually fruitful correspondence with J. Edgar Hoover. Her letters to him became a free space in which she could plot against the subjects of her columns. I loved what you said about the commies in the motion picture industry, but I would like it even more if you could name names and print more facts. Who's keeping the truth from the American public? Oh, I'd like to run every one of those rats out of the country, starting with Charlie Chaplin. We've already discussed how, working together, Hopper and Hoover managed to eventually do just that. But before that task was completed, Hedda started thinking bigger. In 1947, Hedda's actions were not considered to be out of bounds or unacceptable. On the contrary, she seemed to have her finger on the pulse of the culture. Or at least, that's what Luce wanted to project. That's why he put Hedda on the cover of Time magazine that July. As usual, the purpose of the feature was to tear down Luella as much as to prop up Hedda. The cover featured a beautiful, lightly surrealistic illustration of Hedda, while the story referred to Luella as fat, 50-ish, and fatuous. Time pushed the narrative that in just under a decade, Hedda was on the verge of overtaking Luella's status as the top gossip in town. The Time cover story made Luella justifiably depressed. She had never been celebrated by a magazine of that stature, and neither had any other gossip columnist, not even Walter Winchell. Luella's spirits were raised when some friends and colleagues decided to throw a big party at the Coconut Grove to celebrate her 25th anniversary as a Hearst columnist. It was a massive gala with loads of celebrity guests and the speeches portion of the evening was broadcast live over the radio. Luella used her own time at the mic to pay tribute to Hearst, who was about to turn 75 and was too ill to attend. I'm trying hard not to get too sentimental but my heart is so full of gratitude to all my friends, to my newspaper, my coworkers, so many of whom I see sitting out there. My only regret tonight is that Mr. Hurst is not here tonight. I feel I owe so much to him. I feel that anyone who works for the Hurst organization owes a deep debt of gratitude to Mr. Hurst, and I've always felt that one of the greatest things in my life was being able to go to him with my troubles. My years with Mr. Hurst have been the happiest years of my life. Hurst may not have been there, but Marion Davies was, and she was belligerent and drunk. She quickly tired of hearing all the lip service about Luella's undying service to Hurst, and was heard quipping, I've been in the chief's service a hell of a long time, and he's never given me a party. Luella was worried that a Time reporter who had been seated near Davies had heard her mouth off, and she attempted to contact Luce to try to prevent a negative story. Luella claimed she didn't care if Time was nice to her, 
but she couldn't bear for them to be mean to Hurst and Marion. Her pleas fell on deaf ears, and time eviscerated the event, Marion, and of course, Luella. Emboldened by all her good press, the tough times of her arrival, and the quick capitulation of the whole industry to anti-communist pressure, Hedda Hopper decided to push even further. She saw an opportunity to remake the ideological face of the industry. And she took it. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. A lot of the anti-communist and anti-leftist rhetoric in Hollywood in the late 1940s and early 1950s was anti-Semitic. Many of those persecuted for current or past political activity were either Jewish or they had joined groups or signed petitions to oppose the Nazis. This is one of the reasons many suspect the studios went along with the pressure to fire valuable members of their workforces. Most of the studio heads were Jewish, and they were afraid that if they were perceived to be part of the problem rather than part of the solution, a larger wave of anti-Semitism would come for them. They had reason to be paranoid. In 1950, at a meeting of the Screen Directors Guild, Cecil B. DeMille delivered an anti-communist and anti-Semitic screed, calling for the recall of Guild President Joseph Mankiewicz, in which he adopted an exaggerated Yiddish accent to deliver the names of Guild members who refused to take a so-called loyalty oath and also supported civil rights. When DeMille's motion failed, Hedda defended him in her column and complained about the quote-unquote young whippersnappers in the guild who had failed to show 69-year-old DeMille the proper respect. Ultimately, all members of the guild felt pressured to sign the loyalty oath. We've already talked about how Hedda Hopper used her columns to send the dog whistle that fighting Hitler to protect Jews was equivalent to anti-Americanism. After the war, she'd use similar tactics to triangulate anti-communism, American patriotism, and anti-African-American civil rights. Hopper's record on race is not as transparent as other parts of her legacy, in part because she was usually exactly smart enough to not be caught saying the quiet part aloud. 
Her close work with Hoover and the FBI suggests she shared the Bureau's point of view that Black power needed to be stopped to maintain white supremacy. Certainly during the Blacklist period, Hopper's coverage of Black performers was often guided by each performer's level of activism. She excoriated communist-friendly activist Paul Robeson every chance she got, but gave favorable coverage to Josh White, a Black musician who cooperated with HUAC, naming Robeson's name. She tried to ignore Sidney Poitier, who made his film debut in 1950, and managed to not give him significant coverage until he was nominated for an Oscar in 1958. One thing guaranteed to fire up Hopper's ire was so-called race mixing. And in one column in 1948, she levied a warning to the acting school, the Actors Lab, for its anti-segregationist policies. The Actors Lab made no friends when they gave an open-air barbecue which included dancing between whites and Negroes. They used a parking lot on Sunset Boulevard for their dancing space where one and all could see. This group's corny idea of being liberal will eventually lead them into trouble. The situation has nothing whatever to do with racial prejudice or discrimination. Every man in the world is as good as he is in his heart, regardless of race, creed, or color. But that doesn't mean they have to intermix. The lab, whose students included Lloyd Bridges and Dorothy Dandridge, was labeled a communist front organization. And in February 1950, it shuttered for good. For Hopper, the blacklist wasn't enough. So she started working to enforce a gray list of Hollywood workers who may not have been actual communists, but definitely weren't sufficiently right-wing. She railed against what she called questionable characters and suggested in her column that every studio consult with the FBI before deciding who to hire. This is pretty extraordinary when you think about how Luella Parsons had spent almost 30 years trying to prevent the federal government from telling Hollywood what to do. Hedda herself had become a mouthpiece for the FBI, using her column to forward Hoover's philosophy and to enforce the Bureau's preferred forms of discrimination and censorship. If she wrote too favorably about a film that the Bureau considered to be anti-American, she'd get a talking to and then publish a second review transmitting a more critical opinion. The relationship went both ways. Readers would write in to ask Hedda to confirm or deny the communist affiliations of specific stars. And if she didn't have an answer at the ready, she could consult her friends at the Bureau or just publish the question without offering an answer. This was dangerous because in this climate, just having your Americanism questioned in Hedda Hopper's column could cost someone their job. Larry Parks played Al Jolson in two hit movies in 1946 and 1949. Parks fell into a small but unfortunate group of people who, under great duress, named names to HUAC in order to get off the blacklist, only to find their names still tainted. In Parks' case, 
it was Hopper who ensured that taint remained. Parks had been subpoenaed first in 1947, but Huack ended those hearings before calling him to testify. When he finally did name names at a new round of hearings in 1951, in her column, Hedda declared he was offering too little, too late. She even publicly disagreed with the face of Hollywood conservatism, John Wayne, when at a meeting of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, the Duke argued that the industry should forgive Parks and accept him back into the fold. Remarkably, at that moment in time, Hedda Hopper had more influence than John Wayne. Parks was dropped from his contract at Columbia, and he was never cast in a Hollywood film ever again. She also crossed a major boundary that had never been crossed before by any gossip columnist by going after the head of a studio. In 1948, Dory Sherry left RKO to run MGM. Sherry had never been a communist, but at RKO, he had presided over a brief run of progressively-minded films, including Crossfire, a movie which treated anti-Semitism as a serious problem, directed and produced by men who were later blacklisted for refusing to answer questions about their political affiliations. When Sherry announced his new job, Hopper reported it by snarking, The studio will be known as Metro-Goldwyn-Moscow. She retracted the comment after Sherry threatened to sue, but when he later returned from a long vacation, Hopper wrote that Sherry was in the pink after five weeks at Arrowhead, a clear jab at his supposed near-red sympathies. Though Hopper's published attacks and actions as a behind-the-scenes informant had major consequences for Larry Parks, High Noon screenwriter Carl Foreman, and of course, Charlie Chaplin, arguably no one suffered from her activism more than actor John Garfield. We did a whole episode on Garfield in our Blacklist season, but to sum up, before Marlon Brando, Garfield was a method-acting heartthrob. And before Al Pacino or Dustin Hoffman, he was a movie star who was identifiably, quote-unquote, ethnic. In Garfield's case, Jewish. By 1947, he had earned two Oscar nominations for his searing, sexy, naturalistic performances. Garfield was never a member of the Communist Party, but he associated with a lot of people who were, including his wife. In the summer of 1947, Hopper embarked on a tour, talking to women's and American Legion groups around the country about the communist threat in Hollywood. These events were to 1947 Hollywood, what Trump's rallies have been since 2015, in that they're both manifestations of mob mentality and excuses to publicly flog the usual suspects. Instead of Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi and AOC, Hedda had Charlie Chaplin, Melvin Douglas, and John Garfield, none of whom were ever actual communists, and all of whom Hedda spread conspiracy theories about. In the case of Garfield, Hedda fed information to the FBI that led them to persistently investigate him 
even though there was no there there. In another sign of how the blacklist gave Hopper and Parsons ample opportunity to distinguish themselves from one another, Parsons went out of her way to help John Garfield clear his name, giving him multiple spots in her column and on her radio show. Garfield would die of a heart attack in 1952 at the age of 39. His family believed he was killed by the stress of having been unfairly blacklisted in Hollywood. Garfield's death would be recognizable in hindsight as an early turning point when some who had been going along to get along began to realize that the blacklist might be going too far. But Hopper was too high on what she perceived as her righteous victories to recognize that the wind was changing. In mid-1951, she insanely used her column to question Huack for not going far enough, accusing them of quote-unquote whitewashing information about some of their witnesses and claiming she knew of Hollywood communists who had lied to the committee. Finally, John Wood, the Democrat from Georgia who was then chairing HUAC, called Hopper in for a private meeting and demanded that she, quote-unquote, put up or shut up. She was forced to shut up because she had nothing to put up. For all of the work Hedda Hopper did to align herself with the most powerful forces that were making the blacklist happen, by the early 1950s, there was another voice in the crowded gossip field that was even more viciously in favor of witch hunting and even more central to the industry's enforcement of its ban on current or former leftists. That person was Mike Connolly. And though his name has basically been forgotten today, his story is fascinating and crucial to understanding how the entertainment media changed during the 1950s. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mike Connolly was a daily Hollywood gossip columnist from 1949 to 1966. He started out at the trade paper Variety, where he wrote the Just for Variety column that would later become an institution under the byline of Army Archard. In the late 40s, Connolly began working with singer Lillian Ross to ghostwrite her autobiography. Called I'll Cry Tomorrow, the book was adapted into a film starring Susan Hayward in 1955. In 1951, Connolly moved to The Hollywood Reporter, which over the past four years had become the central press organ of The Hollywood Blacklist. The creator, publisher, and editor-in-chief of The Reporter, Billy Wilkerson, had started the drumbeat long before The Blacklist itself was a thing. Wilkerson had always been something of a whore for ad dollars. And in any labor dispute, he would side with the advertising-buying studios. So the reporter was inherently anti-union, 
but it was specifically antagonistic to the Screen Writers Guild, which Wilkerson had been slamming in his editorials for years. Wilkerson started railing against communists in the film industry in the late 1930s, long before most local journalists. And when he found that anti-communist vitriol sold papers, he kept at it. As his son, W.R. Wilkerson III, wrote in 2018, quote, Ultimately, my father's editorials became the seeds of the now infamous blacklist. Senator Joseph McCarthy co-opted what had begun as my father's campaign and turned it into a national witch hunt. Maybe it was not my father's intention to destroy lives, but it's clear that by naming names, some of them innocent, Billy Wilkerson and The Hollywood Reporter had helped to do just that. By the early 1950s, Mike Connolly was using his rambling reporter column to relentlessly persecute the few leftists that still remained on studio payrolls. But he was not just aping the house style of The Hollywood Reporter. For one thing, Connolly had an inimitable style of his own. He also had unique motivation to shine the persecution spotlight on others so that it wouldn't be shown on him. And these things were related because Mike Connolly was gay. He was relatively openly gay for the 1950s. He lived with his long-term partner, Joseph Zappia, and never married a woman to cover his sexuality up, although he considered it. But Connolly's column could not be openly gay. And instead, it was covertly gay. Mike Connolly's columns can today be read as a document of almost two decades of gay life in Hollywood. Despite the fact that Connolly could never explicitly discuss homosexuality as such, except to sometimes joke about the existence of what he called the loose wrist set. Instead, he established a series of codes and standard insinuations that allowed a knowledgeable reader to read between the lines, while keeping the truth largely undecipherable to a straight audience. When reporting straight news, as in about heterosexuals and heterosexuality, Connolly would do it in a voice that could only be described as a camp parody of straight male desire. In one item about big-busted actress Gloria DeHaven, Connolly noted that she, quote, looks so good in those woolen sweaters. And he capitalized all the O's so that on the page, it looked like there were three pairs of breasts inside the sentence. Queer Hollywood knew to read Connolly's column on Mondays and Tuesdays when he'd sprinkle in sightings and overheard anecdotes from the weekend, all of which he disseminated in code. Connolly developed a number of tactics to protect closeted stars, while also winking directly at the gay community. He'd post reports of Sal Mineo, Tab Hunter, or Cesar Romero canoodling with female dates. Instead of saying, for instance, that Harriet Parsons was seen out at a night spot with her girlfriend Evelyn Farney, he would say that Harriet was seen dining with a male date perhaps DeWitt Bodine, who also needed a beard, and Evelyn Farney was also there. Connolly was deeply concerned with protecting his own privacy. For the first years of their relationship, Connolly's partner, Joseph Zappia, ran a beauty salon. 
But as Connolly became an increasingly high-profile character, he decided that Zappia's job was too conspicuously queer and could serve to out the both of them. So Connolly got the Hollywood Reporter to hire Zappia, under the pseudonym Joe Russell, to work for him as a leg man, going to parties or junkets, and bringing back news Connolly could use in the column. This was also a way for the two men to go to the same events without arousing suspicion amongst anyone who would have been upset or surprised to learn they were romantically involved with each other. Sometimes, for added protection, Connolly would bring along Terry Moore, who was at the time secretly married to Howard Hughes, and thus often without a date herself. While assiduously protecting the privacy of his own community, Connolly focused his outing energy on Hollywood leftists who he felt hadn't come sufficiently clean or contrite about their allegiances. It was Connolly who was first to report, in March 1952, that Elia Kazan had secretly testified before HUAC and refused to name names. Connolly timed his revelation to right before that year's Oscar ceremony, leading some to blame the report for Kazan's loss of the Best Director and Best Picture awards for a streetcar named Desire. I wondered if I'd lost votes, especially from people on the right, Kazan wrote in his autobiography, before adding, I don't believe that now. But it appears that Connolly's report motivated Kazan to go back to HUAC a few weeks later to name names. Connolly also went after members of the Hollywood community with much less clout or bounce-back potential than Kazan, who could have worked in New York theater for the rest of his life had he not named names. In 1956, very late in the Blacklist game, he launched a campaign against Edgar Lustgarden and Sidney Green, two musicians who had pled the Fifth Amendment before HUAC and yet still remained employed by the MGM Orchestra. Connolly continued mentioning these poor guys periodically in his columns until finally they were fired. Connolly helped to enforce the blacklist by noting with approval every accused communist who went back to work after naming names and going above and beyond his column to impede the success of any blacklistee who didn't turn snitch. When members of the Hollywood 10 independently produced and released the film Salt of the Earth, Connolly called every radio station in town and threatened them until they agreed to refuse to air advertising for the movie. Finally, and most damagingly, in his column, Connolly named the names of a few men who were not then, nor were they ever, members of the Communist Party, including director Lewis Milestone and screenwriter Garson Kanan. Connolly took so easily to the role of beating the blacklist drum for a number of reasons. For one, he was a devout Irish Catholic, and like many religious people, he believed communists to be godless heathens who themselves sought to destroy the American freedom to worship. In that sense, Connolly believed he needed to go after leftists as a form of self-defense. And in a couple of other senses, too, because directing attention onto communists both gave the industry power brokers validation that their mass firings were justified 
and also showed the FBI and other government readers that Connolly was a friend to the establishment, and not an enemy of it. With both of these groups appeased, Connolly was able to speak to gay Hollywood in plain sight, without arousing suspicion or repercussions from institutional forces who believed homosexuality to be at least as evil as communism. While both Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper had FBI files, and Luella's included the laughable report from an informant that she was secretly one of Hollywood's most prolific madams, Mike Connolly did not. Of course, there has been much discussion around the rumors that Hoover himself was queer, and there has been some fascinating analysis of the ways in which gay panic was wielded to chip at the credibility of Senator Joseph McCarthy, who had a close relationship with his aide, Roy Cohn. Without knowing for sure how McCarthy or Hoover identified or practiced their sexuality in private, both have been accused of deflecting attention away from their own secrets by steering the mob towards communists, which is something confirmed gay man Mike Connolly certainly did. In an era in which there was one conventional idea of manhood, and it was tied to patriotism, procreation, and the defense of so-called American values, to hunt communists was to announce to the world that you were one of the guys. This may explain why Hoover kept no files on Connolly, and though Connolly once gently ribbed Hoover in his column, he effusively apologized for it in a private letter, in which he confessed his shame for displeasing the American man he most admired. Hoover and Connolly may have been locked into a detente born from mutually assured destruction. The Hollywood Reporter had become a must-read during the blacklist because of its crucial role in outing alleged communists and fellow travelers, much of which occurred in Mike Connolly's column. Thus, by 1954, by some measures, Connolly was more influential than either Hedda or Luella. That year, a publicist told Newsweek, quote, everyone in the industry reads Mike, but not everybody reads Hopper or Parsons. Not long after that, Connolly and Hopper started to butt heads. Along for the ride on two separate Bob Hope USO tours a year apart, Connolly and Hopper got into very public shouting matches. During the first incident, Connolly, drunk on the free booze Hope was serving on his plane during a flight to Alaska, reportedly told Hopper that her son Bill was an F-word. And Hopper got so mad that she had to be restrained from hitting him. A year later, the columnists had joined Hope in Japan for a Christmas show, and their host asked them to kiss and make up. They did, and then as soon as the kiss broke, Hedda spat. From there, the columnists took their feud to their respective columns, where they attempted to fact-check each other in print. Connolly was a much better, more diligent reporter than Hopper, so he usually got the last word. But communism remained Connolly's blind spot, and he continued to rail against anyone who dallied with leftism long after the rest of the industry moved on, even as late as the mid-1960s. 
adjusting with the times was something that most of the major gossip writers of the mid-20th century seem to have trouble with. In our next episode, we'll turn back to Luella Parsons, who was pushed by Hedda Hopper and the other new voices in the game to get more spicy in her work. The 1950s, with its sexual repression and hypocrisy, gave her a couple of high-profile opportunities to revel in the sexual taboo-breaking of some stars while shaming others. We'll talk about all of that in our next episode. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. Special thanks to our special guests. Julie Klausner played Luella Parsons. Julie wrote, created, and starred in Difficult People, one of the funniest shows of the last 10 years, which you can watch on Hulu. And she and Tom Sharpling have a podcast called Double Threat, which you can and should find wherever you get your podcasts. Hedda Hopper is played by Cole Escola. Cole can be seen in Search Party, at home with Amy Sedaris, and their self-produced special, Help, I'm Stuck. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We're on Facebook and Instagram, too. And if you go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, you can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources and much more. At the website, you can also find merch, like hats, t-shirts, and our special limited edition Dead Blondes coloring book. You can also support the podcast on Patreon, where you'll get bonus episodes and my monthly media log. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find the show. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all-new story from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night, 